What's up, guys? It's Liz Kelly. Throughout the month of December, we are writing a ton of year-end reviews on the site, ranking the best and worst moments of 2018 in music, TV, film, and sports. You can check that out on TheRinger.com. Also, make sure to listen to the two latest additions to the Ringer Podcast Network. We've got Villains with Shea Serrano and Winging It with Vince Carter and Kent Bazemore. You can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about the Oscars. Amanda, have you seen The Wife? I have not seen The Wife. I haven't seen The Wife either. We still have not seen The Wife. One person that has seen The Wife is the New York Times' Wesley Morris. He'll be joining us later in this show to talk about the very best performances of the year. But boy, the, the needle is moving in the Oscar news, and Kevin Hart is out as host. When Wesley was here last week, we talked to him about what was happening with Kevin Hart before he was out as Oscar host. This is what he suggested he do. Kevin Hart, call Robin Roberts. <laughs> you, you better be on GMA right now. Like by the time this conversation is taking place, I want I, you should have talked to Robin Roberts and just thrown yourself in her lap and just said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't. I mean, I meant it, but I don't mean it now. And I'm really sorry. I'm a I'm a different person. I work with The Rock. That obviously will not come to pass now as Kevin Hart is out. Amanda, first reflections. Last week when we talked, you said, pay me five hundred thousand dollars and I will work for ABC to read old tweets. ABC did not read those old tweets. How do you feel about Kevin Hart being out as the Oscars host? Well, it was pretty predictable for the reasons that we discussed last week, if only because we're going to talk a lot about all the different sides of this, because this is a real hornet's nest of issues. It's a it's a mess. And it's a mis- mess that didn't have to happen if ABC would just have read the damn tweets. And by the way, anyone from ABC listening, you're hiring a new Oscars host right now, offer still on the table. Let me know. But in very specific terms, I would have said even Thursday that I thought he was going to be fired just because there is a precedent in the past year with ABC and Disney uh, firing people because of their bad tweets. And I think James Gunn and Roseanne kind of established a course of action that it was, they were kind of locked in. They didn't really have a choice unless, say, Kevin Hart apologized. And should we move to round two of this discussion? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing. I think he definitely could have been He could have preserved this, I think, if he had approached this in the sort of thoughtful, slow, calm, appropriate way that we all, I think, essentially hoped he would and expected that he would, which is just to come forward and say, which is something that he has noted that he has said before, but 2009, 2010 was a different time. I've evolved as a man. I'm sorry for what I said. It doesn't make it any bit better, but I'm doing my best to be better, and I want to go forward and be the best person I can be as the Oscars host, and thank you for understanding that I'm trying to evolve. And he didn't say that. He said a series of other things. Let's hear one of those things. So I just got a call from the Academy, and um, that call basically said, Kevin, apologize for your tweets of old, or we're going to have to move on and find another host. Talking about the tweets from 2009, 2010. I chose to pass. I passed on the apology. The reason why I passed is because I've addressed this several times. This is not the first time this has come up. I've addressed it. I've spoken on it. I've said where the rights and wrongs were. I've said who I am now versus who I was then. I've done it. I've done it. So I guess I don't totally understand Kevin Hart's stridency. I do understand that famous people surround themselves with a bubble that allows, that doesn't allow criticism to get in. And that's a factor when you look at people not necessarily reacting to criticism in a thoughtful way. It's hard to be criticized. I get that. 
this wasn't the right way to do it. And ultimately, he played the zero-sum game and lost big time because he ultimately did end up apologizing. So he gave this statement. He posted a video on Instagram that was ghoulish. He then decided to step down as Oscars host and then apologized, which in the strategic formulation of crisis management is like 0 for 5 with five strikeouts. Yeah, it's very clear that there was not a crisis management team on hand. And if there was one, then I hope you guys are no longer employed. You know. There has been some discussion since this all happened about kind of why Kevin Hart responded the way this did and why people are kind of like, huh, why this is such a mess. And there is a question of um, who gets held accountable for these sorts of statements and who doesn't. A lot of people have been pointing out that Mel Gibson was nominated for an Oscar just last year, which is an extremely valid point. And there is also the fact that these are tweets from almost— a decade ago. Now, they're really ugly, and they include homophobic slurs. So, and they're still up on the internet, which is nuts. That's just really bad strategy. You know, that said, this whole cancellation culture, blah, 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 it's a thing we have to keep talking about. And if everyone can be held responsible for every single thing they've ever said, well, maybe they should be. But, you know, the way we go about this is evolving and can often happen very quickly and not feel totally judicious. Yeah, we're in an evolving culture insofar as there's no rules for how to approach this stuff. I saw a lot of the responses, particularly there were a handful of people that were defending Kevin Hart after he stepped down, most notably Nick Cannon with a series, though he mm-hmm. did not name Kevin Hart, shared a few tweets from white female comics, Chelsea Handler, Sarah Silverman, Amy Schumer, that all featured various forms of really ugly hate speech in in the same realm as the Kevin Hart tweets. Now, obviously, none of those three people have been asked to host the Oscars, but they've had an enormous amount of opportunity and they're famous people. And so Nick Cannon, in an effort to show the double standard, likewise with the Mel Gibson thing that you noted, people pointing out that he was just recently nominated for an Oscar, which is insane, given what he did 10 years ago. Um, We find ourselves in this real looking glass scenario where everything that anybody's ever done requires examination. And I don't necessarily think that that's wrong, though I do think that the way that you handle it dictates what happens in the future. And Kevin Hart just fucked this up. Yeah, he fucked it up two ways. Number one, that is the world that we're in, whether or not uh, we're, whether or not it's always fair and whether or not that we want it to be that way going forward. It's just kind of how it works right now. And so you got to delete the tweets. You got to delete the tweets, especially if you want to say that you've addressed the situation and that your thinking has evolved, then A great way to prove that is to get rid of the terrible hate speech. But that strategy aside, he had an opportunity to apologize, and he didn't. I chose to pass on the apology. Okay, well, that's game over right there. You know, it's a funny thing because we don't want to make light of the situation at all, but we, when we were discussing it before we started recording, the, the phrasing and the language that he used in defiance of this was very strange and kind of funny. I thought, I don't think he was trying to be funny, but it is very quickly, I'm in love with the man that I am becoming became a meme. That is an absurd series of phrases to defend yourself against things that you did 10 years ago. And of course, I chose to pass on the apology, which I think if, I don't know, Lady Gaga had said this five years ago in the the light of a controversy, it would have been considered hilarious and we would have been valorizing her her bravery in the statement. Obviously, in this context, it's terrible. And I, I just don't know what Kevin Hart was thinking. Let's look to the future. Uh, It's Monday afternoon on the East Coast. We don't know who the Oscar host is going to be. Right before Kevin Hart was named, we mentioned that this is really like a very thankless job. And the Academy has a tough task in compelling someone to do this job for, while a, a good a good amount of money, it's, it's, it's lucrative for a week's work, but it is a week's work. You need a truly famous person to do it. 
And as the ratings sink and the power of live events shrinks, what really is the value of being the host of the Oscars? And I, I don't know. What do you think that they'll do? It's a great question. We talked last week about how the Golden Globes hosts are actually a good, fun approach to the situation. There's Sandra Oh and Andy Samberg, who are not hugely famous, but are recognizable to certain groups of people, have very passionate fan bases, and will also make for a fun show. And number one, they need to read the tweets when they're hiring a new host. But then number two, I think instead of thinking of someone who will bring the largest audience, they got to find someone who will just make a fun show. And I think that's probably someone less famous than Kevin Hart or Chris Rock or Oprah or... Anyone. I mean, when we went through this almost 10 years ago with Brett Ratner, the Academy leaned back to the past and pulled Billy Crystal out and brought him back for, I think, his fifth hosting duty. And, you know, that was effective enough. It it did the job. Um, Billy Crystal is a very professional and appreciated Oscar host. I don't know if they have their version of a Billy Crystal at this stage. I mean, it's not off the table that Billy Crystal won't host the Oscars. I, when I was just speaking, I was saying what the Academy should do. Right. And um, what the Academy should do and what the Academy does is often very different and makes us tear our hair out and is the reason that we're here talking about uh, this whole debacle. You know, the one thing that I've been thinking about, too, is will they actively make an attempt to address the controversy in hiring a new host? Will they bring someone in who's LGBTQ? Will they bring in someone who is a very progressive figure? Like, I saw people saying, like, Hannah Gadsby should be hosting the Oscars. Now, regardless of what you think about Hannah Gadsby's comedy or her her career, like, she's just not famous enough to host this show. There's no chance that someone like that is going to be named the host of the show. I think you also just can't... Hannah Gadsby does a meta commentary on what comedy is, and that's... She's very good at it, and it has its use, and you cannot do meta commentary at the Oscars. You need someone who's going to sell this ridiculous dog and pony show. It is a ridiculous dog and pony show. It is a popularity contest. It is a bunch of famous people in a room patting each other on the back, and you need someone who can go along with that. Because the host is effectively selling, we should still be doing this. The Oscars, they still matter. Or at least they're worth watching for the next three hours. And I, I don't think that that is in Hannah Gatsby's range. Yeah, I think it's also a big tent show. It's a show that a lot, it has to appeal to a lot of people. So not just, you know, sort of protecting and supporting the, the premise of the Oscars, but also bringing in as many people as possible to make them feel like they're included and interested in this quote-unquote race. It's a really weird, difficult job. I don't, I, I'm not really interested in the like, here's who should host. Like, candidly, they should just give Lin-Manuel Miranda like $5 million and just have him do it. I thought they should have done that six months ago. I suspect he doesn't want to do it, and that's why that hasn't happened. But he, it is synchronized perfectly to him performing in a big movie and him being a beloved Hollywood and New York figure. But barring that, I don't, you know, we, we can go down the list of people, but it's kind of banal to me. I would agree. I'm still holding out hope for Drake. Drake's not going to host the Oscars, but that would be fun. I would enjoy that. Yeah, it's it's tough because it's a really hard job that is kind of a lose situation for anyone except someone who needs the exposure. And so I think that's what you're going to get. I don't know whether Lin-Manuel Miranda needs the exposure at this point. He may not. He yeah. may not. Maybe we should get like an Instagram influencer. Oh, gosh. No? No. Imagine if Tummy T sponsored the Oscars. Oh, that's, that would, oh, This is no. a jam session crossover okay. here. Yeah. Um, okay, there's no real easy way to pivot from this, but we're going to pivot from this and talk a little bit about everything that happened over the weekend with the Critics Awards. You know, I think most notably the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, which 
has been not necessarily a bellwether for winners, but certainly a bellwether for nominees in the past. Along with the New York Film Critics Circle and a series of other bodies, they named Roma Best Film. And it's interesting. I think you and I might think Roma is is the best film, if Mm -hmm. not among the best films of the year. This is very much like the Golden Globes, though with a different sort of constitution, a small group of people making a decision to name something best. And whenever this happens, it's easy to court controversy. This one in particular, I don't think is controversial at all. I do think it's notable because it feels a little bit like 2010. Because in 2010, New York, L.A., and the Golden Globes all named The Social Network Best Film. And that was obviously in the dramatic category for the Golden Globes. And then the King's Speech won, mm. which is not a good movie. And I do think that there is a case for either A Star is Born being the King's Speech this year or Green Book, which is a, a little wild, but it's possible. I just physically recoiled at you putting A Star is Born and The King's Speech in the same sentence. That's unfair. That's unfair. I know what you mean, and in terms of awards, and I, I get it, but rude. It's not a judgment about the films. Yes. I'm a big fan of A Star is Born. It's more about what the Academy responds to versus what critics, groups, and journalists respond to. I would agree with that. And I think even a few weeks ago when we were talking about, you know, all the critics' words are coming, I was kind of like, I think Roma will sweep because there really has been this advocacy on the part of Roma from critics and just make sure you see it and see it on a screen and it is a masterpiece. And, I, you know, I, I agree with all of those things. Uh, I think it's wonderful, but it has become the movie that critics and and this is where you get into trouble, like serious film people think that um, they need to protect and um, boost. And I think you're right that that puts it in a tricky spot because once it becomes like the serious film, there is a whole group of people that are like, I don't know. I, you a can't, lot, yeah. yes. A lot of Hollywood people will, will reject that. They, yes. they, they, they are not necessarily interested in preserving that culture. And that it, it kind of speaks to the tension. It speaks to the, you know, zero dark 30 versus avatar. It speaks to the moonlight versus La La Land. Like we always find ourselves in the situation now where there's this binary between, you know, the true cinephiles masterpiece and then the big Hollywood self-mythologizing story. And I don't know why this keeps happening. Maybe it's just because the human brain is split between two sides and it always needs to balance itself out that way. Or maybe it's just because Hollywood is silly, but I couldn't help but seeing it this weekend. And I should say, the LA Film Critics Association, I thought did an awesome job of being the LA Film Critics Association. Like (laughs) They named so many great performances and films that I appreciated that was on our top 10 list that we've talked about on this show. You know, Burning getting recognition, Minding the Gap getting recognition, Ethan Hawke getting recognition, Regina King getting recognition, Tony Collette, Stephen Yun, like so many people that people like me and you, particularly people like me, have spent time saying like, check this out. You got to watch this. It's so good. It's so unique. I'm very impressed by what they did. It'll be very interesting to see if the critical mind is moving any closer to the Hollywood mind because of the way that the Academy has changed in the last four or five years. Do you think that that's plausible? I think it's really interesting. I was thinking this morning about how we're not going to know in the way that we normally know after the Golden Globes or by late January, usually have a sense of things. It's usually a, a long march through February to confirm what we have suspected for weeks and weeks. And because Rome is not competing in either category at the Golden Globes, there's just going to be a lot of other films in the mix. And you won't really have The Star is Born and Roma head-to-head in a full mainstream 
capacity until the Oscars. So I think that's kind of exciting. I think it's interesting how A Star is Born is still really quiet right now. And I know that once the Golden Globes come back, Shallow is obviously nominated for a Grammy and a Golden Globe in successive days. Like, I have been listening to it a lot. The time is coming. But, you know, I think the conversation will mutate a couple times because A Star is Born will have its moment and then people may get a little tired of that. Roma will come back in. It doesn't feel to me, and maybe this is just because I'm a mark for Roma. I just think it's astonishing. That's the other thing. Most people still haven't seen Roma. Right. This is release week, theoretically, yeah. for, for most people in this country. Which is amazing. And so we'll have, we'll never actually know how many people watch Roma on Netflix, but we'll have a sense of what the general audience's response is to Roma, which may change things. You know, I really do think that it is more than a critic's pick. Like, I, it just is astonishing. And I, the reason that we do the show is because part of me wants to believe that people will, like, really will embrace it and movies are powerful and, you know, it'll, it will take the Oscars. I don't know. You're probably right. I spoke to a couple of people on Thursday about, you know, kind of how people vote and why they vote. Two of these people were voters and they're new to the Academy and they were both like, I don't really want to reward that. You know, I don't really want to reward the Netflix experience over the theatrical experience, which is a very straightforward conversation that we've been having for pretty much since Beast of No Nation and that that our first Netflix campaign for the Oscars. But people just feel that way. They just don't want to support removing a movie from the theater-going experience. And it's complicated. Now, obviously, they've put this movie in 600 theaters around the world, which is not nothing. Um, it's, It's a sincere effort. It's not as sincere an effort as the thousand theaters that the favorite's going to get into next weekend. And I don't know, you know, I, I I don't know what to be invested in anymore. That's the kind of complicated aspect of the movie business right now is there's, it's hard to know what to say is the best possible thing because Roma is such a special movie made on such special terms, such basically unprecedented terms that to say, well, this thing is more powerful than this thing, or this thing was more meaningful to the future of movies than this thing. It's just a moving target. Can I add one more thing here preferential ballot which we haven't even talked about because it it is actually not just roma versus star is born because the that's why the green book thing i think is real yeah it's and you know throw the favorite in which a lot of people are really loving and you have so many different types of movies here and so how someone decides to rank them is all the difference so I really don't know. It is kind of interesting. It is. It, I, there's a reason that we launched this podcast. Yeah. You know, we knew it was going to be a good year. We knew that this year, I think, told us a lot about not just where movies are, but where kind of the brains behind movies are going. And sometimes it's into the sewer and sometimes it's into the heavens. So, you know, we'll continue to track this and uh, we'll closely follow kind of the post-Roma reception once the rest of the world gets to see it next week on this show. Um, and now let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. Support for today's show comes from the new film, If Beale Street Could Talk. If Beale Street Could Talk is, above all else, a love story. From Barry Jenkins, the writer and director of the Oscar-winning Moonlight, comes a soulful drama about the power of love. Based on James Baldwin's acclaimed novel of the same name, this moving story embraces the triumph of love and family. See If Beale Street Could Talk in select theaters on December 14th. We have a special guest. His name is Wesley Morris of the New York Times. Hello. Hi. Wesley, thank you for coming here. Thanks for having me. I it's an honor. I mean, it's you guys. It's an honor <laughs> so to be it's here. Not an honor. It's, well, it's like a it's like a regular <laughs> occurrence and an honor. It's a it's an honor 
as a listener of the show. It is nice to talk to you, Sean. It is nice to talk to you, Amanda. Likewise. This is a taped friendship reunion. I'm really glad you're here. You know, we're going to talk about uh, the best performances of the year for a number of reasons. One, this is an Oscars podcast. Two, Wesley, in the New York Times, you just wrote about some of your favorite performances of the year. Just generally speaking, I'm curious if you guys think this was a good or great year for movie performances. No. No. It was okay. Okay. It was okay. I saw some great acting, some of which is not going to get prizes for anything. We should Mm -hmm. definitely talk about those people, too. Um, Yeah. It wasn't a year in which there were there was even one performance that kind of added something to the way we think about what acting is and can be. And usually there's something like that. There are things I like that get that 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 expand the definition a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, for example, a person who won't get anything this year, but Daniel Kaluuya in Widows. On my list. I just feel like that guy is an actor. Harry Rollins. Never mess with me, I never mess with him. Be in different games. I always have respect. So why'd he hit me now? Well, I don't know why. Thinks you're setting your sights on something high, you getting sloppy. And I think he can do anything. I've heard stories from people telling me every time I go on this Daniel Kaluuya rant, well, he's not he's not as hungry as you think he is. He he wants to be doing other things. I'm like, well, okay, that's probably true. But what when you that, watch the- What does yeah. that mean? It means that he, he maybe he wants to make his own movie. Maybe oh, okay. he liked to write a book. Maybe he likes like staying at home and like taking care of his cat. I don't know. Okay. But there's always some like weird veil, like well, he doesn't work as hard as Jake Gyllenhaal. I'm like, well, I'm sorry. He <laughs> probably isn't even getting Jake Gyllenhaal parts. Let, can we check your- Whatever. Also, I'm I'm now going on a rant about a person who I won't even name and who does know what he's talking about, but I just feel like Daniel Kalia has made three movies that we're aware of at this point. This was a great this is a great follow-up to get out too. I mean, it's a completely different part. Completely he's different a part. Evil son of a bitch, and he's so terrorizing and uh it's just a great 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 performance. Right. And this per- the the person who was telling me this, by the way, wasn't casting aspersions on Daniel Kaluuya. He was just trying to like calm my I think Daniel Kaluuya is the best actor in the world <laughs> yeah. uh, enthusiasm because we really don't know and it's funny because he was such a non-entity in Black Panther and I wonder I mean obviously it's not a very good part I mean it's not a it's not a part that lets you do a lot that's true um, but you watch him in Widows and you're just like just the way he slouches in the chair and looks at um, what is that actress's name who I'm now not going to, woman who plays Colin, uh, Colin Farrell's girlfriend slash uh, campaign I manager. I actually don't know her name. Um, she's been in a couple other things. Mm-hmm. And the way he looks at her in that chair, I covered my chest. The lasting image for me is him waving at the funeral from far away, mm-hmm. standing next to Brian Tyree. Oh, mm-hmm. Very mm-hmm. ominous wave of like, I, I see you and I, I can get you anytime I need to. Anyway, that was a performance that I saw that I was just like, okay, this is, I'm learning something new about this actor. And I'm also learning something about the way a particular actor's entire mannerism and, and, and um, physical state can just body chemistry can change from one part to the next part. Like he didn't, without any tricks, right? Like he mm-hmm. looks like the exact same guy, but is a totally, totally, totally different person. One thing that's held against him, I think, in Black Panther 2 is just having now rewatched it a couple of times. 
I don't really understand that character, and I feel like that's one of the only mm-hmm. kind of flaws of that movie is there's that character just kind of turns on Chadwick Boseman's character, and you're like, what? I thought they were boys. Like, why is this? There's like an illogical aspect to that But story. that turn in every movie where a character like that does that yeah. never makes any sense, and you know it's just like a boomerang, and he'll be mm-hmm. back. You're just yes. like, okay. He he also, I think, and I think he's acting the turn He's acting the second turn, the return, not the heel turn. Right, right. Well, no, the second true. turn is also the only like really great moment that he gets when he's standing off on the battlefield and is like, you would do that to me, my love, which has been kind of memed into infinity now. Right. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the only thing that he gets to do in the movie, I would say. So I understand why you're playing. He too. does get to wear those clothes, though, and he looks really good in them. I'm just going to say that. You went into full uh, NPR voice there, just yeah. so you know. Um <laughs> What else about Widows? You know, there was there's some anxiety post Golden Globes, whatever that means, about Widows not being recognized. And of course, some box office lack of success. A handful of times we've talked about it on this show, Amanda. And there are a lot of performances that I think we thought were going to get some shine. Viola Davis in particular, I think people thought was relevant in the best actress race. That's the best acting she's done in a movie. Right. It's so good. She's so good in this movie. My husband left me the plans for his next job. All I need is a crew to pull it off. Why should we trust you anyway? Because I'm the only one standing between you and a bullet in your head. Anyway, go on. I think we had Cynthia Revo in the EGOT conversation. We were like, oh, this yeah. is going to happen. And, you know. That's gone. That's gone. Yeah, Elizabeth Debicki. I mean, I don't know what. I, I mean, now I know many, many people who do not like this movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you guys have met them, too. I've seen them on the internet. I don't yeah. really understand them. No but. one has said it to my face. Oh, yeah. Well, I can inter- I can give you some names. Okay, thank some you. of some of them are people you know. <laughs> when we're done, I will hook you up. Okay. Uh, but no, there the complaint. There's lots of different complaints, and they go. They they there's a gamut, right? Ga- the gamut includes everything from it doesn't understand Chicago to this plot makes absolutely no sense, and. I understand both those things, but I'm a sucker for a movie that gives me somewhere between 10 and 40% more than I than I expected to get from it. And this movie gives me about 41% more than I thought I was going to get. Yeah. And, I mean, the other complaint that we heard from people too was that it's just not, I think it's just people are like, this isn't enough like heat. You know, it's like the, the efficiency of the heist isn't cool enough. And so I couldn't connect what? with it enough. You know, and that's I think in some ways that's a very masculine concern and people not getting enough out of that. And I think the kind of the low key clumsiness of the heist itself is part of the insightfulness the of, of the movie. High, right. You know, like that's kind of what makes the movie interesting in some ways. And but, you know, people just want to they want De Niro and Val Kilmer looking slick. You know, this is is that really I think so. I mean, some boys. Yes. But I know, I'm not saying that. the women. I know a few women who've seen this movie and are also like, well, I I both wanted more of the women. Mm-hmm. I didn't care about all the men. But there's a real physics to this, right? Where like in order for the heist, it's not like Ocean's Eight, where there's a kind of fantastical ideology at work in that movie, having women like you know, you take George Clooney's rib and you create Sandra right. Bullock, right? Like. This to me is a crime, the heist, a heist of, of of real necessity, and there's something about like, and people are like, I don't understand Viola Davis. She works for the teachers union. What a that's a dumb. What a dumb. That doesn't make any sense to me. We never see her teacher unioning. Um, <laughs> but 
I think that doesn't that, sound like a good scene. Yeah, right. But, Viola Davis being but, a teacher's union well, rep. I think that there's another half hour of this movie where maybe you do see her go to her job. Sure. But I also, I also, I have a really, int- I, have, I have a question about this movie. And not a lot of people have brought this up. Although the, the, the friend who wanted more of the women also had a problem with, with the, I mean, what, what is maybe a spoiler? I don't know about the son. Right. And I actually think that the, the apartment they live in, this is, this is my Gillian Flynn and, and um, Steve McQueen can <laughs> flush me down the toilet one after I offer it. But I think the apartment they live in, which is really nice. And, you know, it's in a building. I know exactly where in Chicago that is. And it is a nice building. I think that they live in that apartment not from crime, but from the city settling a oh. lawsuit. Oh. I actually think that that got dealt with and it afforded them that place. I don't think that Liam Neeson character is living there based on the iffy business of crime because yeah. that just wouldn't make sense to me, but but a, but a settlement would. Um, Do you think the movie would be stronger, more powerful if that were clarified to audiences? I think it would kind of derail the other energy, right? It already feels like that flashback is a tangent. But you have Mm -hmm. that great scene. One of the best scenes in the movie, I think, is when Brian Tyree Henry visits her in the apartment and Mm -hmm. he's sort of menacing her throughout the apartment. And you can sense she's almost trying to communicate like, I'm not rich. This isn't my life. Like, Mm -hmm. this, what you think I have, I don't have. And... You know, there's obviously some depth to that whole concept that she's trying to convey. But if you if they had made it more clear, really, that that was a a they were nouveau riche because of a tragedy, that would maybe have been more powerful. I mean, this is what I think happened. I don't think that that is that is dirty money. It's well, it's it's a different, it's a morally different kind of dirty money. And I also think that what she's acting in this movie is so much deeper than. I think this is a woman who has no money. She never had any money. And maybe they never had any money. We don't know how they met. And I think that the money they have is not from, like they keep saying, you know, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know anything about my husband's business. And they keep, they keep saying she's lying. Of course she does. We never know that. But I think that the thing that she's playing in this movie has everything to do with like being poor and having lost a child. It has nothing to do with the, I mean, she does take that, do- I mean, there is something comical about, the <laughs> and the clothes, when she walks into the garage and she's got that like $4,000 Diane von Furstenberg pantsuit on, and you're just like, yeah, this is a woman who really does not want to give this up. Yeah. She will never <laughs> wear Jersey again. <laughs> and I, I just feel like she's acting so, this is like just the richest part in a richest movie part I think she's ever had. And she has so many choices that she gets to make. And she makes them. I feel like we could yeah. do a, a tic-tac-toe board with all of the performances in the movie. I think mm-hmm. both the women and the men, mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. a lot. There, there are literally nine serious speaking parts in this movie. It's a shame. I, we both really liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you really took a lot away from it too. Um, let's talk about something else, Amanda. What do you, what's one you, uh, a performance you want to spotlight? Well, to... Segway off Widows, we got to talk about Brian Tyree Henry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which we talked a little bit about last week. Um, And this is, it's really three performances for one because there is Widows, which is probably the least impressive of Mm -hmm. his three while also being The most expected, I guess, is maybe the way to put it. He doesn't do anything that you couldn't imagine him doing. Well, he threatens a dog, but 
you know. I do love the construction of that character, though. No, it's Him good. running for the it's Alderman. Good, that, is, yeah. that is a very precise, smart positioning of a guy like that. But anyway, this continue. movie is smart. It really ideas. is. There's a lot to talk about. Um, he was also in Atlanta, uh, which is a television show, but is fantastic. And he is the soul of the show. He's giving the best performance on TV, he I really would say. Is. I would agree. And he just steals Beale Street. Uh, if Beale Street could talk. Mm-hmm. Which he's in it for, I, I would say, 12 minutes. Is that the runtime? 12 very deep minutes. The movie basically stops and yes. begins to re- revolve around him for those 12 minutes. Yes. And it's astonishing and heartbreaking. And he does his acting. And I kind of learned the kind of acting that I really like this year, which is not outwardly demonstrative. It's the type of people who can just kind of make the the mood or the color in the room shift mm-hmm. just by existing. And he can do that. He can just shift his eyes. I mean, he he can make a face when when you need it, but he has such a power over the energy in a room. It's astonishing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he did not get nominated for Golden Globe. So I don't, I, we, let's just not even talk right. about those 88 people. It's 88 I, people. There we go. Sorry, I'm done. Um, <laughs> I think that he is okay. So there's maybe like five people who I think are just inarguably exciting. Would watch them kind of do anything because they're just really surprising. And he is one of those people. I mean, in in I've seen him on stage. I've seen him. He was incredible in Lobby Hero. This right year. of the performances he's given in the last 365 days that we've seen. Mm-hmm. That for me is is the best because. He did more than he maybe even had to do for that part. I also think that Chris Evans is really good in that play. And for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, it's a Kenneth Lonergan play that was restaged on Broadway earlier this year. Chris Evans, Michael Sarah, Brian Tyree Henry, Bill Powley. It was a pretty great cast. Yeah. Um, yeah. He but he was far and away the the strongest member of that cast. But they everybody, well, three of those people were really good. Um <laughs> She she just had this accent. I couldn't get past her bad accent. She 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 really gave it everything she had. But this is a British woman playing an American cop, and I'm sorry. It just I'm fond of her, but okay. Uh, me too. Yeah. But I'm I'm sitting there watching these people like be utterly natural, and this person get very close, but not be able to convince me she was that person. We should do a Michael Serapod at some point too. Although he wasn't really in any movies this year, but he, his career has become very interesting. Yes, to me. he's now like. A very good stage actor. Yeah. Anyway, Brian Tyree Henry is one of those people. Another person I would say who who really is also like changing or like like bringing back a kind of acting because mm-hmm. I think that Brian Tyree Henry is interesting because he'll never have to change a lot to change the properties of our room in the way we were talking about Daniel mm-hmm. Kaluuya. And the idea that those guys are brothers is so funny to me <laughs> because they make that work. I believed that that brotherhood, if it, if they really were biological brothers, um, Jetem. What's the, the best name? That's Daniel Kaluuya's character's name That's in great. Widows. Jetem. Oh my God! Doesn't Colin Farrell reply? Yeah, like, I love you too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a great line. Um, Lucas Hedges. Jared, tell me the truth. That's all. I think about men. I don't know why, and I'm so sorry. Is, is, is I love as much as I love Brian Tyree Henry and Daniel Kaluuya. Wow. So I, yeah, okay, let's I'm talk interested about to talk it. about this it. Is good. Uh, I would say 
personally, I thought both Boy Erased and Ben is Back were not exactly the movies that I wanted them to be. No. Though I do think that he is extremely compelling in both movies. Mm -hmm. And there are some actors, and I feel like you guys especially know what it's like when somebody is at the center of a movie and it makes, the performance is strong enough that it doesn't matter that the movie doesn't work as much as you want it to. I don't know if he really fully clinches it in those two movies. No, but... But though I feel feel strongly towards him just like you do. But my... Well, how do you feel? Well, I was going to say, I recently, very recently watched Ben is Back. And what he and Julia Roberts are doing together Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is, for me, that kind of, that special thing at the center of a movie that doesn't totally work. And especially the second half when they're just kind of in the car. And I think there is something about Lucas Hedges that brings out that performance in Julia Roberts. Ding, that ding, 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 ding. And she's talked a little bit about it. She's in interviews. She's been like, well, he looks like he looks like my kids. He's like the lost motor mm-hmm. child. But mm-hmm. um, the lost motor child yeah. is also a great film. I'd <laughs> yes. like to see. But I do think when they're in the house in uh, Ben is back and the anxiety and the nerves, it, it comes from a connection between the two of them. That's pretty special. So. Mm-hmm. I think that the the thing that you're identifying though about what so the hesitation if you if you're listening and you hear us not if there's a if there's something holding us back it's not Sean Mendez uh, <laughs> if there's something holding us back about Lucas Hedges in these two movies it's that the movies it's that he hasn't he is we've seen him in movies where the part is his part right like you see him in Manchester by the Sea and that's a thing that he does. Um, that he can do very well, which is occupy a character that has a lot of writing to it and not a situation, right? He's not acting having lost a parent in that movie necessarily because he's got this character has been given this really rich life and has all these other things to pursue and all these things to connect to. And he gets to play all the connections, right? Ben is back and Boy Erased are problem movies. And he isn't a problem actor. He's, I mean, he is a problem. He can, I mean, you give, you every character yes. has a problem, but he this is an issue. parts, though, where there are problems. Th- in Three Billboards, he is a problem kid. He's so good in, in that, in Lady though. Bird, right. he's a problem kid. Like, right. And that's not to say that there's anything wrong with his character, but it's, the character is dealing with a kind of a pain or an anxiety or something that the rest of society deems as unacceptable. And a lot of his roles are like this. Like, I kind of want to see him in a slapstick movie, an action movie, something that is just different from these shades. Oh, but see, I I like, see, the thing that I was going to, person I was going to compare him to, and I can't believe I'm doing this because I didn't think much of it at the time, but I'm now nostalgic for it in a way because it doesn't exist anymore, which is Jeff Daniels. Mm. Like when Jeff Daniels was in every other movie, there was never a lot to the people he was playing. And those characters were put in situations where they had to, like the actor had to figure out what to do with the part because the script really wouldn't tell you. They're kind of blank leading man-ish kind of roles. Right. But Lucas Hedges, I mean, I'm thinking about him in Lady Bird. And I mean, Lucas Hedges has an advantage in that a lot of the good parts that he's had have been existential sort of identity problems in some way. And, like, the thing that he gets to act in Three Billboards, um, which is rage at his mother, the Frances McDormand character, is is an interesting wrinkle in this in, in that movie, which three—the <laughs> less said, the better. 
Right? I mean, we don't have to re-educate <laughs> that nonsense. I I just find him. I find the properties that he brings to a part really exciting, even in these two movies. Which I, I mean, I think Julia Roberts is the surprise of Ben is back in terms of like how much gets brought out of her. Yeah, that I had never seen before, and you know, she is my favorite movie star of all time. Part of the reason I wanted to have this conversation with you (laughs) was I knew that Julia would come up. But I think that he, I just can't wait to see the movies, if we still have them in five years, figure out what to do with this guy. Because I think he's really good and can, he can't do anything, but I think that good filmmakers will figure out things to do with him. Like Trey Edward Schultz, I think he's in the next Trey Edward Schultz movie. He is. That guy can direct actors and he can write. So he'll have something to play, presumably. There's an interesting thing happening with award season in him right now, too, which is that he's in a play, another Kenneth Lonergan play. And he's really good at The in Waverly that too. Gallery. Yeah. Um, I'm seeing it next week. Very excited. And he's not doing the campaign thing. So he's not out there kissing the babies and shaking the hands because he's doing a part on Broadway. And, you know, it's a, it's an interesting choice. It's like evidence of a person who really wants to act he wants to be an actor and so hopefully he's not going to do i don't know some bad dc movie in the future he's going to use the coin or that play he picasso <laughs> wow. do you know what i mean yeah. like but something obvious and right, like dull like he's right. obviously he's looking for he's looking for depth and complexity in the characters he's playing i just i would be curious to see him in a in a part that isn't bound by his character's problem. The right. Lost, you know what I mean? The Lost but, Boy movie. Yeah. But, yeah. but but I think that these, but Boy, Boy Erased and Ben is Back are just, they're not great versions of that problem. Whereas I think Lady Bird is a great part for, for like for him. And there's a surprise there. Like that character surprised me. And the performance by extension surprised me. Like I also think that's a really good Timothy Chalamet part I and, completely agree. I mean, I don't know that there. I I feel like Greta Gerwig should just write for those two actors because I think she understands. Isn't Chalamet coming back for Little Women? Isn't that happening? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that character kind of already exists, but right. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about somebody else. Um. Hmm. I feel like I could just spin a wheel and <laughs> say a name. <laughs> what about Stephen Yun? Can we talk about him a little? Yes. Bit? Oh sure. Hemiga Jongsu shi 특별하게 생각한 거. 나한테 그랬어요. 이 세상에서 자기가 믿는 하나밖에 없는 사람이라고. 언제나 자기 편이 돼줄 사람이라고. Uh, I don't know what you guys think about the movie Burning. I really like it. I do too. Have you seen it, Amanda? I have. Okay, you did see a little. <laughs> Little more. Oh, speak. No, no, I think I think Burning is very good. Burning is the movie. Um, that surprised me on the year-end list because it's basically on everyone else's top 10 year-end list. And I would say that I thought it was very good and I understand why other people connect to it and it is not on my... It, it was not on my top 10 list. Mm-hmm. That's okay. I don't. I, and, it's high on mine, but yeah. I also would understand someone not connecting to it. Mm-hmm. I think it would be hard if you told me you didn't think Stephen Young was good in this movie. I was about to say that he is the clear standout. Yeah. Oh, Interesting. I mean, I mean, I think you, well, you well, wrote about yeah. the lead of the movie right. in, you, in, in the I, Times yeah. package. Yeah. And I, I kind of want the reason I bring up Stephen Yen is because I want to kind of hear you talk about the two of them in relation to each other and why you wrote about UIN instead of Stephen, Stephen Yen. Right. Um, because I had seen him in Sorry to Bother You, 
where I think he is a movie star in that movie. He's a movie star in both movies. Um, but I think that talk, I mean, we're talking, I guess a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is, is science. <laughs> Cause like, I mean, no, really, I mean, control their like, bodies. chemically, yeah. like a, a chemical property that belongs only to this one person mm-hmm. that in a given environment can do anything based on what's around it. Right. And there was something about him in burning where his character, I just, that character made sense to me. I understood it. It wasn't, I think once I figured out what was going on in that movie, he became less interesting to me. And you are in's character, who's the protagonist of the film. The film, for anybody who doesn't know, is about a sort of lonely, aspiring writer who has nothing to do but overexert his imagination once his once a woman he had sex with maybe once or twice disappears. Hard to believe critics love this movie, Wesley. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Just saying. Okay, Sean Imagine Fantasy. the type, you know? I said nothing. I love it. It's very high on my list, but, you know, there's something aspirational inside of this movie and where it takes some of the people writing about it. Yeah, I don't know. I, I see that Lee Chang Dong does not make it, quote, easy, unquote, for you. And you kind of have to be willing. The movie's two and a half hours. You have to be willing to sit there with him while he sits there, while yeah. he literally sits mm-hmm. there. I think that's one of the good things about it is if if you accept that it is going to move at the pace it has chosen, it works really well. It's right. literally called burning. I mean, it is a slow burn. It's it's, an, it's all baked into the premise. Right. But he, in, in Sorry to Bother You, he's so hot in that movie. <laughs> and the mo- but the movie needs him to, like, his being sexy is the thing that he's supposed to do, but it's like maybe the second or third thing that, like, he's not playing sexy in that movie. He's got other priorities as an actor, but there's this other thing that comes out of the friction between, you know, his playing this activist and his playing this player. And the the two, the sort of, his sort of his being a good person and his being a bad person create this little forest fire of sexiness. And I think that performance is is way more interesting to me than what he does in, in Burning, which is very smooth and slick and insinuating. But increasingly, you just realize he's some guy that lives next door to you. Like he's literally some guy that probably lives next door to you and cut you off on the highway and not the thing <laughs> that the protagonist thinks he is. He may not be the demonic plotting evil force that potentially he is positioned as. Right. But we, but we, don't, get, know. we don't know. We don't yeah. know. We don't know. We never right. totally we never get really clarity know. on right, that. Right, right, right. What's next? Let's do Yelitsa Aparicio. Okay. Let's do it. That's really up there for me. She got snubbed. We didn't talk about her snubbing at the Golden Globes, whatever that means, snubbing. Yes, but the Golden Globes' whole relationship to Roma is so complicated that I'm not. But let's just factor out the Romanness of 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 why she didn't get nominated. Yeah. And talk about <laughs> this they're called the Hollywood Foreign Press. <laughs> what did, I this completely- is a Mexican woman giving one of the best performances of the year. There are no uh, let me let me be clear about whether I'm, this is true what I'm about to say. Are there any non-British or American citizens nominated for Golden Globe this year? It doesn't matter. The answer has got to be zero to one, right? <laughs> I don't believe so. Yeah. I just don't even, feel, how could they not do her a solid by pure, like, like visa standards, right? Like just, you you are one of us, but they're so, they just, I don't know. They, but anyway. they're Hollywood obsessed. But, they don't want to, their 
emphasis on the first word, not the the foreign. You know, not even the press. You're gonna skip the press part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm. Okay. Just throw that out there. I mean, they're <laughs> regardless um, of how we feel, they are certainly an association of some kind. <laughs> and I think we're reluctant to be associated with them because they do things like not mm-hmm. recognize Yelitsa Aparicio, which is you know, it's a, it's one of those kind of weirdly classic ingenue performances, even though it's not a typical ingenue role. It's like a person with an incredible real life story who found herself in this movie, which is an extraordinary movie. And, you know, if she's not nominated for an Oscar, it's going to be awfully strange to me. I can explain it. I can explain why they won't nominate her. I mean, the the Academy does this weird thing every year, right? Like, not every year, but many years, there is somebody in the mix who's never acted before. And you're kind of like, huh, didn't see Catalina Sandino Moreno coming. Yes. This is a surprise. It's good good on them. Or Convention A. Wallace. Convention A. Wallace yeah. or Keisha Castle Hughes. Yes. Um, there's all Mario Hemingway way back when. Yep. People who you're just kind of surprised because Anna Paquin. Anna Paquin. Barkhad Abdi. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. um Adriana Barraza. Uh, Rinko Kikuchi. I mean, you, this is like, we could play this game all day. There's There are people in these movies. They all have something in common. They're supporting actors? No, they're not American. Well, she's not American either. I know, either. that's what's so interesting about it. Oh. That's why I think I'd be shocked if she's not nominated. And, uh, you know, we could probably talk a little bit in, down the line about why they keep doing that with actors who are not native English speakers. And there's something kind of complicated there. I mean, Convention A. Wallace and Keisha Cashley Hughes are, but... Is it, she's Australian. Uh, New Zealand, I believe. Okay. But regardless, Sorry, like, Keisha Castle Hughes. Um, I could be wrong too. It's just one of those funny things where, for some reason, they're valorized in the same way that there's something held against them. Like those people almost never win. They never win, but they're always nominated, and it's it feels like a little bit of a pat on the head. So it's it's a bit of a conundrum. Um, we're yeah. not really talking about her performance. We're talking about the Jerry well, right? But here, we want to set up. I'm explaining why she probably why why. I, but I also think that. Actors nominate actors for the Oscars, and I I wonder, especially in the best actress field, if enough actors, given who else the app the options are, are gonna think that she quote did enough unquote to warrant a nomination. Now, let's just talk about why the hell she does. Because she does. I agree. Um, first of all, and this is kind of an underrated value when it comes to movie acting, but it's the number one most important thing. I got lost in her. I was fascinated by what she was thinking and that I don't know is not a matter of her being opaque as an actor. It's this sort of entire moral project of the movie, which is this woman has an inner life that the people around her aren't privy to. And it's partially because they don't ask or care. They don't seem to understand, yeah. Right. And partially because she herself is a private person. And watching her do her job is in many ways getting to know her. The act of, I always think about people who play service parts and it's a little bit like people who play athletes. You have to like learn how to be physically fluid and conversant, physically conversant if that's possible in the job that you have to do. Like you have to learn how to play basketball or shoot a gun or mop or sweep. There's something about the, she knows how to do her, like like Cleo, the woman she's playing, is good at her job. And 
she gets pleasure not from the job itself, but from being good at it. And she connects with people around her. She's not a robot. Yeah. Um, That's what I was gonna say. It's not just that she takes the wash, wash base into the roof of the building. It's that the children in the movie love her and have a physical and emotional connection to her because of how good she is. Right. That being her job. Right. And obviously she also cares for them, but that's part of the job. But she cares for everybody. She has this great relationship with the other, with the other housekeeper. Um, and they have a bond that belongs only to them. Um, then she meets this man and they have a connection. I don't know. I'm going to start crying just thinking about right. because a lot of it is things happening to her too. A lot of the movie is her not even reacting to things, but like withstanding them. Yes. Experiencing them and enduring them. Right, right, right. Yeah. I think the point that you made about um, the connection that she makes clearer between every other actor on that screen at some point is really phenomenal and is the example you were talking about. It's not capital A acting. It's not like giving a soliloquy or gaining 100 pounds or jumping out of a plane, though respect jumping out of a plane, and we'll come back to that. Yes. But um, Who jumped out of a plane? Tom Cruise Your did. boy Tom oh, Cruise. Oh, 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 okay, all right. Hold the but thought. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'm just saying there are different ways to act, and I think the emotional kind of ties that she effortlessly makes plain is astonishing and not every actor can do that. Mm -mm. And it's, it's real acting. I love the, the connection that she draws, the kind of contrast she draws between Marina de Tavira too, who, you know, plays sort of the matriarch of the family in the movie. She's and also she's really, really, really good. Actress. Yeah. And she's very sort of high strung and tense because of everything that's happening to her in her life. And the way that you can see her kind of managing around her own feelings and then relying on Cleo to kind of like do the dirty work in some cases mm -hmm. of things that she just can't really cope with is amazing. I mean, they really bring out something great in each other. I had never seen either one of them before. Obviously, mm -hmm. this is the first movie Yulita's ever made. It's just a crazy good performance. I'm glad yeah. we talked. I'm glad we talked about it. Uh, I just want to say that they're both fantastic, and I hope more things that are good happen to both of them. But I think that, uh, I mean, with the uh, people who give out more prizes is what I'm saying. Sure. Uh, they'll probably get to act again too, would be my yes, guess. Yes, they'll probably get to act again too. <laughs> Although, but the other thing with these, with the that list of people we just named, what happens to those people? Basically nothing. Almost every single person, Catalina Sandino Moreno still works, but not, not nearly as much as I would like her to. Convention A. Wallace was Annie, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And then nothing? As far as I know. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a, in some ways, maybe she shouldn't be nominated. Maybe she, she should be spared from this process. But while you, while you, working. listen, you and I have had this conversation, this fight about Convention A and how people were mad at me because I, I don't like that performance and I really don't, I, I don't like the movie. I'm not into that movie either. Yeah. And, People were mad at me because I didn't think she should have nominated. And like, I got it on two fronts. Like, how dare you say this about a young black girl? Like, okay, sorry. And how dare you say this about Kavenjane? And they couldn't even pronounce her name. And I had to tell them, it's, you know, it's Kavenjane. Well, um, I just feel like if you're going to enter this girl into this contest and you're going to push her out there the way you did, I am free to practice my job on her. <laughs> no, of course. And literally yeah. just say, I, I don't 
I I prefer someone else to win Best Actress. Like that's it. I'm not like I hope she. I'm. I have nothing bad to say about her in general. But I mean, I I have to be able to like talk about her performance because she gave one. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, Yulisa Aparicio is 24, I believe, not 11. It's a little bit harder when it's a really young person who is put in the spotlight like this. And then, you know, she became to some people like a mascot. You know, that the way they would treat well, her on the red carpet and yeah. the way that she was positioned by handlers or interviewers. You mean Convention A. Wallace? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, was, yeah that was yeah. just kind of a gross yeah. thing that was happening to the her. The apparatus was not cool. Yeah, to her, I would say. Let's talk about something cool. You want to talk about Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible Fallout? Let's do it. Yes. Benji, do you copy? We copy, go. Change of plan. I'm blue. Need extraction. We're on our way. So you talked about science, and I think that there's a lot of science and chemistry happening with whatever it is that Tom Cruise is doing in this movie. I wouldn't say that it is necessarily markedly different from the great physical Tom Cruise performances. But for whatever reason, I have been fully hooked, lined, and sunk by <laughs> the, the the sort of narrativizing of holy shit, look at all this stuff Tom Cruise did for this movie. Like, I'm just in on it now. Like, just show me all the videos of him training to be a helicopter pilot. Show me all the stuff of him on the motorcycle going around the Eiffel Tower. Show me him jumping, doing the halo jump out of a plane. Like, all of it. Just feed it to me. I'm into it. I accept it. I also am like, this is also a version of acting. That sounds stupid, but it is a huge part of training to do your role as an actor. So he's amazing at all that stuff. Plus, he's still Tom Cruise. Yes. So yes. he's doing Tom Cruise stuff with Rebecca Ferguson in a movie that like wouldn't work if it wasn't him doing that stuff. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Tom Cruise. I agree. We, I've said this before. We give awards for people gaining weight and losing weight and learning how to play the piano and learning how to play the guitar including Bradley Cooper, who I'd like to talk about. We'll get but, there. you know, as you said, those are all skills that people train and learn how to do. And so is jumping out of a plane. I, I'm with you for all of this, 100%. I do want to say that, that you're set up for let us all now praise Tom Cruise, which I am, I'm going to bow down in one second. But I do worry about I mean, you're right. All of those things do constitute acting. I just don't want to know that you did them. See, I don't care at this point. It's I, like the, okay. the cat's out of the bag with But Tom does Cruise. that apply to people like Christian Bale and and Jake Gyllenhaal and any other, or Michael not, B. Jordan, anybody who like where part of the thing that is the part of the reason you're going to see this performance is seeing some kind of physical transformation. It hasn't been held against Daniel Day-Lewis, you know? I, we hear that all the time about the becoming a cobbler for two years in order to perform in this role. <sighs> I guess, but he's so good. It doesn't even matter. <laughs> I will but I don't, but I also don't want to know. I don't want to know. Yeah. I will say that Tom Cruise has turned the, here are all the things I did in order to uh, play this role into art. Like, he's not just, you know, Christian Bale or... No, uh, but being yes. Like, oh, I gained some weight. That and is it was a hard. beautiful like, point. Yes. You are getting behind the scenes featurettes. I mean, it's a weird through the looking glass half the time. We need to talk about the video that was recently released, which was Tom Cruise and the Mission Impossible Fallout director, Christopher McQuarrie, teaching you how to turn off the motion smoothing settings on your television. Have you seen this video, Wesley? I'm about to fall out of my chair. I, Let's run we, a little yeah, clip. Can of we that. watch it? Uh, can I show it to you? We're very proud to present Mission Impossible Fallout, and we want you to enjoy it to the fullest possible effect, just as you would in a theater. To that end, we'd like a moment of your time to talk to you about video interpolation. 
Video interpolation, or motion smoothing, is a digital effect on most high-definition televisions and is intended to reduce motion blur in sporting events and other high-definition programming. The unfortunate side effect is that it makes most movies look like they were shot on high-speed video rather than film. Now, this is sometimes referred to as the soap opera effect. Oh. Uh, Listen, not everyone can make a video that weird. Not everyone can make a behind-the-scenes video that I need to stop a podcast in order to make sure Wesley has seen it. And... That Ooh. is part of the art of Tom Cruise. That is why Tom Cruise is not Christian Bale, is not Jake Gyllenhaal, is not the other people. It's not only that, though. Well, it's not only that, but when, it's part but of it. When he gets to work, he he works. Yeah. He mm-hmm. works on all the levels. Listen. How do you feel about the heat between him and Henry Cavill? You in? I am. Um, <laughs> it's very difficult to watch that. <laughs> um... Mostly because, and I'm saying this as a person who knows what's about to happen to Tumblr very soon, it's just too much. You know, people talk about chemistry dying in the movies. (laughs) (laughs) It still counts if it's by accident. That's true. Yeah, It really does. There's something happening between them. And the movies could never really, there's so much, there's so much man-to-man um, like great chemistry that you know it, the people that you don't want to think about being with each other and then people you do want to think about being with each other I always want to think that Charles Grodin and Robert De Niro like lived happily ever Shacked after together. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's nice you know I mean when it's by accident when the movie doesn't even need it to be that way but there's something about the the, the properties changing when these two People get together and listen, Henry Cavill is no Tom Cruise, but Tom Cruise, with all due respect to the God, Tom Cruise is no Henry Cavill. So, (laughs) so (laughs) when they get together, I just, I, he really, Henry Cavill Cavill came alive in this movie. Oh yeah. Yeah. Something happened. He was like super lunk. It was really, really it's all you, the mustache. His his dream came true is what fucking happened. <laughs> he couldn't believe the thing that like he like I don't know what Lucas Hedges felt about working with Julia Roberts, but I bet you there was like three percent of him that was like <laughs> making a movie with Julia Roberts. <laughs> oh my god! He probably feels away about working with Elaine May on Broadway right now too. But I'm just saying that Henry Cavill was probably like. I started stopping eating and just taking exercise pills to work with you, Tom Cruise. I fixed my teeth for the first time because of you, Tom Cruise. I I can't believe I'm in a movie with with you. True love waits. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, who else should we talk about? Regina Hall. Okay, yes. go. Support the girls. Did they just knock out my cable? Hey! Hello? I'm in the van. What are you doing? You losing your mind? <laughs> yes, I'm. We should support this girl. It's a horrible pun, but how many times are we going to get to make it? Because who knows what's going to happen? This is my favorite performance that anybody gave last year in a movie. Regina Hall and Support the Girls by Andrew Bujalski, who is like the best American filmmaker nobody has ever heard of. He is making movies that we used to get every week. And like light comedies, like light comedies with a movie star and a situation. And the solution to the problem is both screenwriting 
and the movie star's movie starness. You, and a, you talked to Bill when Burt Reynolds died, and I feel like Burt Reynolds and Goldie Hawn used to make movies like this all the time. All the time. And 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 the the, the prime time for this movie was the 19, like late 70s to like early 90s. I think House Sitter pretty much began to kill the genre, that Goldie Hawn, Steve Martin movie, which yep. was too high concept to be worth going to see. Um, Regina Hall has about 35 things to do in this movie. All of them very small, but very important to the plot of the film. She's basically running uh, a booby bar, like like Hooters, in Texas. Double whammies. Double whammies, it is true. And she basically is just like doing scheduling and trying to make sure that there's there's like a childcare for one of her waitresses and the cable is out. She's got to figure out how to get the cable back on before some big fight that happens at 6 p.m. later that day. But there's so much wonder in this performance. There's like, she manages the stress with this woman's natural personality and the writing is so good that like the farther out the movie goes, the more you realize this woman's life is also kind of a mess. And she too while being professional and and good at her job, also might just be a weirdo as a person in some ways. And we don't exactly know how weird, but she's managing all of these contradictions at, at her in her work life that that affect, you know, I'm a black woman managing a place that doesn't want to have more than one black girl working at a time. And I have to remember that, that that's a rule. <laughs> it's just... I don't know this that performance brought me so much happiness partially because I love Regina Hall mm-hmm. and I've loved her for a long time but also because this is what happens when you get a director who who seems to like his star and can let her do what he knows she's capable of and she exceeds any expectation you'd ever have of of Regina Hall's Regina Hallness she's just so good in this movie it's a great performance. It's also a, a, a low key, very good uh, supporting cast. Yeah, oh yeah, I love, I love Haley Lou Richardson I, so I much. I also have Haley Lou Richardson and, written and down. And Jungle Pussy. And Jungle, Jungle Pussy, Pussy yeah, is also yeah. the two of them are Shana really. Hale is what yeah. she's known mm-hmm. as in this in, in this film, but she's the performer Jungle Pussy. Yes. Yes. Um, Sorry, Jungle ha- Pussy. Haley Lou. Though I got she's that's a that's a famous person. That's a person that is going to be a thing. Maybe yes. next. Maybe next year. Maybe twenty twenty. She's really good. This mm. was the second time this year that I've finished a movie um, because I only saw Columbus this year. Uh, but the second time that I finished a movie, I've been like, who was that? And the answer was Haley Lou Richardson. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And the thing that you were saying earlier about changing so dramatically from role to role. I mean, she still has kind of a effervescence and a, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you want to watch her, you want to be around her. But uh, I was surprised. I didn't know it was the same actress. She's amazing. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Was- Regina Hall, Haley Lou Richardson. I I like them. I like them both. Regina Hall, of course, you know. But we're running low on time. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about Bradley Cooper. Hey, what? I just want to take another look at you. In all the good times, I find myself longing for change. I've been waiting to talk with Wesley about Bradley Cooper and A Star Is Born for I think five months. <laughs> so this is a big day for me personally. Dream, dreams do come true. Dreams come true. Bradley Cooper and A Star is Born. Uh, I, I love it. I'm like completely still fully in. I saw it a second time. I am amazed at the level of 
arrogance and intensity that it requires to do something like this. And yet I'm not bothered by it at all. Mm. I think it's like actually worthy of this contraption that he built for himself. And he obviously has done, he's done a lot of these things that we're talking about where he's talked a lot about his vocal coach and copying Sam Elliott's voice, growing his hair, his mangy beard, learning to play the piano, writing these songs, compelling other people to write songs, following Clint Eastwood around like a puppy for 10 years and asking him how to make movies. And yet, fucking amazing. I love Jackson Maine. Can I tell you something? I said at some point, he really likes Lynn Shelton. That's his... That's his, that's his, I don't know if it's his favorite director, but that was really where he was going with this. That's <laughs> what I'll say. Meaning he wanted to do a, a character piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, listen, Bradley Cooper is the single, is the only actor I can think of who went from like the bottom of my, of my movie going priorities to like damn near, you know, the skybox. I don't know how he did. I mean, a part of it was just getting the right role. And I don't, I can't remember now. We, no, we, nobody could ever kind of keep it straight. At least I can't. Was um, Limitless, was that before one of the Oscar nominations? Was that after Silver Lightning's Playbook or before it? They're all right around nobody the same Nobody can time. remember yeah. exactly when know. it was. I think Limitless was first. Because I don't, I think that that movie doesn't really work if you know he really can act, right? You you go to that movie thinking that dude from Wedding Crashers is actually a movie star, yeah. And this is a this is a throwaway movie, a kind of movie they don't make anymore. Like they tr- like this that movie came out ten minutes ago, but it already is dead. Like Limitless is a throwaway movie that's not intended to win anybody anything except like another car, and he's just enjoying himself in the movie. And I was like, okay, I like you. I really like you. <laughs> and I like that you know what you are. But then he starts turning into these other people in movies and he isn't just playing Bradley Cooper. He is this unusual 70s style combination of a movie star who can and wants to act. And he's just really good at his job. This was the turning point for me. The trans- toward or against? Toward. Okay. I, the thing that you said about going from kind of the bottom list of priorities to I will see everything immediately. I, I'm seeing the mule. Oh, I mean, I'm a Eastwood completist, but also Bradley Cooper's in it too. As am Apparently I. he's only in like two scenes well, for what it's know. worth, but that's that's okay. <sighs> Is Pena in two scenes? I think, yeah, I think everybody, it's mostly Clint. Okay, fine. Sorry, Amanda. No, it's fine. It was just to say that I was not particularly interested in him even last year. It was hard for me to reconcile the movie star aspects of Bradley Cooper, both on and off screen, with performances that, you know, it was one to... One too many David O. Russell movies. And I'm like, okay, mm. you're doing this thing. You need to be serious. And you once you can really feel that Oscar thirst on someone, oh, I interesting. kind of like, mm-hmm. there's a mixture of anger and desperation in many of his performances that is possibly good for the characters, mm. but is, I don't need to spend time with that. Did you buy it? You didn't buy him in Joy. Well, that was good. But, okay. you know, he's just kind of there It's for not a, a huge scenes, part, but right. like, he's so delightful in that. I don't know. Go yeah, on. But, I, I'm I mean, not a big Joy, Joy fan. Is, right. That's, I mean, that's the problem is right. that Joy itself also felt so microwaved. But this was unbelievable. 
And I think also, if I could just echo a point that you made earlier about a different performance, but um, Bradley Cooper is so hot in this movie. <laughs> it's like, and, and the fact that he shot himself to look that way mm-hmm. is just, you know, I will be unpacking that uh, in terms of psychoanalysis forever, but... But there's already a precedent for it. Her name is Barbara Streisand. It, we, <sighs> and... It all, but, and, and this is, this is, I mean, not to turn this into a, a Barbara thing, but think about the way we talk about Bradley Cooper having made a movie, <laughs> a remake, ironically enough, of a Barbara Streisand yes. movie. The way that we talk about how good Bradley Cooper is at directing himself is exactly the opposite of the way we talk about Barbara Streisand directing herself. And I would say, and I don't know if this is going to sound crazy, but I believe it. I think this is as good a movie as Yentl. I think Yentl is a better movie in a lot of ways. But all of the things that kept Barbara Streisand from getting even anywhere near the acclaim that Bradley Cooper is getting for doing, I would say, essentially the same work. And let's be let's be real, y'all. She also kind of directed a Star Is Born the, the time she was in it. Definitely. Yes. Uh, Which uh, it just it is it is so depressing to me. <laughs> that's it it's just that, that that is just totally a male female dynamic yeah that's all, you know, that's just, all. I'm just yeah, throwing that like, into the room the, 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 the we thing, can resume loving Bradley Cooper yeah. I'm sorry well, the, the, <laughs> the comparison that I would make that feels most accurate is Ben Affleck and Argo where there are scenes in Argo where he is portraying him, his body so lovingly that it's actually quite strange mm-hmm. like I tried to put myself in the in the mind of Affleck when I was watching Argo to try to understand why there's like a 25 second shirtless shot of him like in the shower thinking of a plan yeah mm. I remember it and it's, mm. it's anyway. like it's self love <laughs> it's why. movie star shit you know mm-hmm. and if you're a man you can get away with it a little more easily because you're no tour but Amanda what yeah. are you identifying in in that um, the thing that you can't believe in terms of his his mirroring I, I mean, when I said I'll be thinking about it in a psychoanalysis sense forever, it's fascinating and I don't think flattering. I, you know, mm-hmm. he is, that movie is a mythology and it's really effective as a movie, but mm-hmm. he is definitely building a myth of himself as a celebrity, an important person. And he's, you know, working out some difficult issues and possibly marrying with his own life. And I respect that, but there is also an aspect of it that's just like, I'm a freaking star and I'm going to build this whole apparatus, as you said, to to be this person. And it is egomaniacal and also really alluring at the same time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think your point is well made that we only use the word egomaniacal when talking about Barbara Streisand directing herself in that way. But, uh, you know, it's fascinating. I wouldn't do it. I don't know anyone else who would do it. Well, I mean, things like this do happen. It just never, the movie rarely turns out to be good. It really yes. works. That's it. That's it. I think that The Town is is a better movie than Argo, for one thing. I don't think that's a crazy thing to say. I agree. No. But I also think that he's directed himself to give a better performance in The Town, Ben Affleck. And I think that there's a simultaneous vanity and lack of vanity in, in that performance versus like a Warren Beatty who you know, really likes to to pour it on in terms of, you know, his, his being a movie star. Um, I don't, but but the thing that I think that I find fascinating about what you've identified is the thing that makes him a great movie person, which is that he is simultaneously 100% a movie star and 100% an actor. 
And those things are always in conversation with each other with very little tension. Um, they, they, they make him a 200% performer as opposed to like a 50-50 or like a hundred, you know, I mean, I think that he's f- always firing even in joy, you know, <laughs> like he, he is giving you, he is now at a state in his career when he can kind of give you everything that he, that he's got. Um, if he's committed to it and there's something on the page to give to. If you think you've seen Bradley Cooper acting, you haven't until you've seen him performing the character Rocket Raccoon. I was going to bring oh up Guardians of the gosh. Galaxy, yeah. The video of him wearing a headset performing that voice work is that is also in addition to the motion smoothing video, my film of the year. It's the funniest <laughs> fucking thing I've ever seen. He really, really cares about getting Rocket Raccoon right. And I respect the hell out of it. It made me so uncomfortable. That's the part of Bradley Cooper that I still just recoil from. Mm. I don't, I, I the, like is actually it vanity? have to physically lean away oh, from God. the computer. But no, it's so extra. It's so, mm-hmm. you just, the, thirst it's that's like he wants he it is. so bad he's a theater he's kid he's inside the and actor studio guy yes that's very true and when you can when it's made plain i get uncomfortable but what i think is so brilliant about a star is born is that he engages with that act that fact with his theater kidness mm-hmm. and makes it work mm-hmm. guys wesley has to go so what i want to okay. do is a very quick lightning round you each get one more performance that you want to you want to mention before Gosh. we move on here are you ready Three. No, I have so many. <laughs> I have a whole list. I'll let you say two, but you can't freestyle. Wesley, why don't you go first? Um, this is more work uh, than Regina Hall had to do, but I still love Regina Hall the most. Number two, um, Zayn Alaraefa in 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 Capernaum. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! This little fourteen year old boy man is incredible. The movie is grueling. It is tough. It is. We it haven't is talked about Capernaum on the show. Un, yet. Unrelenting. It comes out at the end of December, and it is. Are you trying to make him the new Cavendine? Uh, oh please! <laughs> oh don't even. This guy. He's. I mean, natural. I mean, like it's weird to sort of say that a that a that a movie about the tolls of the Syrian war contain within it the 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 seeds of movie stardom, but this kid is a natural actor. And he's also gritty and tough. He's like the before, he's like a flashback before you get to like, you know, Adrian Brody, you know, 40 years later or whatever. He's great in this movie. And the other person I would, I would talk about are uh, Bill Camp and Carrie Mulligan in Wildlife. Yeah. Um, a movie that I don't think it died a death. I mean, people saw it. Um, It'd be nice if more people saw it. But the two of them, they have two scenes together that I think are just really great feats of acting. Paul Dano directed it. He and Zoe Kazan wrote it. And the two of them are really Bill Camp and Carrie Mulligan. She's turned a corner, I would say, with that performance because I didn't like her very much before. Wow. Okay. I'm ignoring that Wesley said that last thing. But I I agree about wildlife. I love wildlife. I think the scene, especially the Bill Camp scene where he's talking to the sun and it's just the two of them and he talks about being in the plane. That's just one of the great scenes of the year. I love that part. Okay. Amanda, you're out. Your turn. Okay. I've picked my two. The first is Lana Condor. Yeah. Star of To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Does that count? Yes. It's a movie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Netflix. And I think we just talked about Yelita Paricio. Same deal. Same oh studio. God. We're I we we need to have a conversation about we need to have a therapy session for me. Okay. And our changing times. Okay. Because you guys seem 
pretty platform fluid. Mm. I am. I am actually not at all. And I every time I try to watch a movie on Netflix, like Outlaw King, I wind up spending two hundred dollars on Amazon because I'm so bored. So <laughs> I can't watch. I mean, I'm sorry. It's true. <laughs> sorry, Netflix. I would say my position on this is evolving, and I'm committing okay. to the Netflix experience because well, they're making good films, and that's yeah. Important. But so part we of, should have a psychotherapy session. Okay. Anyway, let's go back. to— Wait, no, no, no. But right. here, this segues back because I, I am very platform fluid when it comes to movies like To All the Boys I've Loved Before and set it up because I can just go home and turn on a rom-com or a teen comedy and just it's in my home and I can watch it. And that's great. And these movies are delightful. And I grew up watching movies like this and they don't make them. They don't put them in theaters. Mm -hmm. And there is. Well, they they sure don't Netflix. Yeah. (laughs) But I do also think that these are the types of movies that are delightful to watch on a like Tuesday night when you had to deal with a bunch of shit and then you go home and it's cozy yeah, and I agree. pleasing. It is the perfect marriage of like form and platform. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm pro and I'm saying Lana Condor is uh, the star of To All the Boys I Loved Before. And I basically am shouting her out because I feel guilty I didn't put her on my actual performances list, uh, which ran last week on The Ringer. Um, Noah Centineo is great and has gotten a lot of attention, but the movie doesn't work without her. So... That's my number one. And my number two is Sakura Ando, who is from Shoplifters. Oh, yes. And she is, how do I do this without spoiling too much of Shoplifters? She is the mom figure in Shoplifters. And I think the second half of that movie and her performance is just heartbreaking. And ding, ding, ding. I, it has just really stayed with me. She's a truly great actress. She's been great in other films. She's, I think she's been in other creative films yep. as well. She's um, a regular. She, she's a great actress. Yeah. If you haven't seen Shoplifters, go see Shoplifters. Should I do some silly ones? I, I mean, define yeah. silly. I really want to shout out Jesse Plemons and Rachel McAdams for all the work they've done in Game Night. Uh, uh, that's great. Which is a movie that I like. I would not say that I love it, but I like it for probably similar reasons that Amanda is saying for To All the Boys I've Loved Before. I wish there were just more competent studio comedies. The thing about this movie is Jesse Plemons is basically good in everything he does now. He's now one of those people who, if he shows up, you're like, I'm in good hands here. Rachel McAdams is a great comic actress mm-hmm. and should not be in True Detective Season 2. She should be in Wedding Crashers. She should be in Mean Girls. She should be in Game Night. She's so fucking funny in Although, Game Night. Can I just say, she was really good in Disobedience. Oh, I didn't see like, that. Like, talk about Rachel states, states changing. I mean, not convincing as an Orthodox Jew. <laughs> <laughs> Her name's literally McAdams. But, but very, but that's, that's the thing that she can do, Acting. which is like, I didn't care. I didn't care that I didn't, I should not believe this person in this part. She made me believe it. And anyway, go on. She's very funny in Game Night. Yeah, there's not much else to say. The moment when she uh, realizes that her husband's yeah. arm has been shot through <laughs> the boat is like one of the funniest things I've seen this year in the movies. And the, my other somewhat frivolous, but one of my favorite performances of the year choice is uh, Anne Hathaway in Ocean's 8. Oh, yes. 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 And Ocean's 8, I don't think is very good, but I do think that Anne Hathaway is very yes. good. And Anne Hathaway gets a hard time from a lot of people in the press for being a try She gets up the press, the world. From people. The world. For me from time to time. Yes. But that's yes, fine. I guess you know from what? you. She was wonderful in Ocean's 8. Delightful. Very, very funny. I and love her so much. Doing the thing that Julia Roberts did so effectively, I in, think, in Ocean's, in Ocean's 12. 12. Yeah. But not necessarily in the same way. She put a new spin on self-referentiality and... Showed that she has a sense of humor about herself, and even in doing that, she still seemed like a tryhard, but in a good way. Yeah. Where 
Are you Anne Hathaway? You're a movie star. Come back. Movie star for us. Please. Movie star for us is the new motto of this podcast. <laughs> for Wesley Morris and Amanda Dobbins, I am Sean Fennessy. Guys, thank you for doing this. Thank you. 